mean, you've been putting in work for so long. Putting in a lot of work. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to Putting In Work, episode 139 of the interview podcast on the 8-Bit Collective. We are powered by Audio Technica, and I'm your host, John Peck. I realize I haven't plugged my latest book for a while, so I'll quickly let you know that The Maven Effect is available now. It's my second novel as part of the Maven series. It's a espionage adventure and the sequel to 2017's The Spy and the Maven. If you want to pick up a copy, you can hit me up on the social medias or head over to gumroad.com slash Jono himself. But for now, we have a great guest today. It's Jake Plumridge, who I've known since he was, I think, like 14 or 15 years old. And now he's doing some really cool stuff, primarily as a camera operator. You might remember his brother, Nath, was on here sometime last year talking about his new album. Jake's working with the production company Robot Army. They're responsible for a new documentary that just hit Discovery Channel called The Hunt, which is all about the search for big cats in Australian bush, basically. There's been sightings of these pumas and cougars and jaguars for 60 years or something. It's long thought to be a myth. No one's been able to prove it. The government hasn't been able to prove it. And there's a lot of skeptics out there. But this was a really interesting watch. So I recommend you check it out if you can get onto the Discovery Channel via Foxtel. Even with a subscription or trial, free trial to Foxtel now. But Robot Army is also the crew behind Rostered On, the Australian sitcom that takes place in a electronic store. That show is hilarious. It was on Netflix. I think now it's on 7 Plus. You'll have to maybe look around for that, but it's definitely worth a watch. And it's a great contrast from the work that Robot Army and Jake did with something like a documentary with The Hunt to see, I guess, the range of productions they're involved with. You know, you, you work in a town like Geelong where I live and you have to be able to pick up a variety of work, whether it's shooting for network TV or working on your own stuff like Rostered On, which originally aired on YouTube before it picked up and went viral, or doing something like Discovery Channel's Hunt documentary. So Jake's got a whole range of experience in these different areas, different shooting styles. So it's really great to hear him share about how he's got to that point and the different variety of work that he's involved with. So without further ado, here is Jake Plumridge. Enjoy the show. Jake, thank you so much for joining me. Bro, absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on. That's all right. I tried to get you a while ago, but you're probably too busy shooting cats and, and running around the hot ways to jump in, so it's good to finally do it. I should probably start off by saying I watched the documentary last night and uh, I found it really fascinating, so well done. Awesome. Thanks, bro. I'm glad you uh, glad you got on board with it. It was uh, yeah, a lot of fun making it. Have you had much feedback? Because it's only just aired and it's probably not like everyone that has access to it on the discovery channel yeah it's been um it's been really interesting i think i think a lot of people have stories of you know big cat sightings in australia and a lot of people are really interested in the topic it's kind of a bit of a taboo um you know like everyone their grandfather dad's got a story like Mm -hmm. um so it kind of raised a lot of questions i think for people that had finally been like, oh, I had a sighting, you know, five, six years ago and they're making a doco on that. And um, a lot of people have written in and commented and yeah, we've had several articles that have stirred a bit of hype and hmm. yeah, it's it's really cool to see people um, jumping on the topic and yeah, it's a bit of a weird one, but uh, you know, people are <laughs> loving it. Yeah. Have you ever worked on something for this long? Because I think it was probably like 
2018 that things kicked off for you? Yeah, so for The Hunt, we essentially have been filming for the last 12 months. But prior to that, it was a lot of um, sort of research-based. Uh, we're trying to learn about, trying to gather essentially people's stories. Like, just get to know, you know, where's where's the fact in all mm-hmm. of this? Like, what stories are interesting? What stories are, you know, surrounding this the massive rumor of big cats in Australia? But I had... Um, I'd had the privilege of being a camera operator, gee, uh, it would have been like a few years back now. So I was over in the Masai Mara in Kenya and I was working for Animal Planet over there. So I did two tours over there working for a um, production called Big Cat Diaries over there. So that was a lot of fun. Really cool. So Mm. I kind of had a bit of a, I guess you call it a bit of a taster for working with animals and the documentary style so i was really excited to jump into the hunt awesome we'll have to circle back to that but i'm interested like as far as the documentary team behind this usually when i'm watching a doc i get a sense of like okay they're trying to push the viewer towards this conclusion or this conclusion you know whether it's making a murderer or whatever it is do you know, like, did you guys set out to, like, prove this big cat thing or to dispel it? Or was it really just, let's see what happens and let the audience figure it out? Yeah, that's it. Um, we kind of played it open book. We didn't want to force a story, necessarily. We kind of just wanted to exhibit the facts and detail a few key people's stories along the way. I think a lot of people have made up in their mind, whether it's real or uh you know <laughs> misbelief and we kind of we kind of have to sit on the fence in regards to we'll follow up any story that's interesting you know any lead that's particularly um you know there's something about it we think there's you know there's been a sighting or um you know some fact to it and we kind of just captured everything and then put it on the slab and cut it up and we um yeah, didn't want to. We avoided the hype in the film. We really wanted to show just a really raw look at. Here's people that have been, you know, trying to find this cat, cats for years, and mm. we're going to tell their story. And yeah, there's a lot of you know twists and turns in the doco, and a lot of really interesting historical records and imagery we found that it kind of blew me a lot, like blew me away when we were actually working on the production because you kind of think oh, there can't be big cats in Australia. And then we just kept uncovering some really interesting stories about, you know, the US were bringing over big cats as mascots when they're mm. over here. And we've got footage of, I got photos of tigers being sold at the Fitzroy docks. And it's just these crazy stories that when you tell it to people, they go, oh, hang on, this is like, there is a serious um, reality to this. So yeah, we try and just take everything in and then you know decide what makes the card and keep mm. it as truthful as possible in the edit yeah that was probably the most fascinating part to me because the you know I, I probably should preface this to say like i've worked in the in the media in like the southwest quite a bit over my adulthood and had done my share of big cat sighting news stories or like someone sends in a video <laughs> or a photo <laughs> of a feral cat and says check yeah, this yeah. out 
Yep. So amongst like my peers and and like colleagues, we'd kind of had to have the discussions, and it was always like, oh, maybe you know, they always say maybe they escaped from the circus, and it's like how many like jaguars or panthers could have escaped from the circus but like (laughs) seeing seeing like those that footage of like the classifieds in the newspaper and like photos of soldiers with big cats you kind of go okay i guess you know and and having just you know watched tiger king and seeing the way that the black market operates selling uh, and breeding big cats you think okay maybe maybe it's out there and you know, I went into this documentary probably the skeptic, watching it with my wife and her being probably more like thinking that it's it's a reality. Her parents have a farm near Colac, I guess the edge of the Altways, and her brother has like this story of seeing this black cat on their property and it was massive and it was definitely something. So maybe she was carrying some of that into it. But I think by the end of it, and I don't know if we should spoil anything, but I should say like, by the end of it, she was kind of more like, oh, I don't know, actually. So I, I want to know from you, who's probably seen more footage, including what didn't make it into the dock, where do you sit at this point? Yeah, definitely. That's, um, yeah, it's funny you mentioned about your wife had, um, you know, her brother had a sighting. That's the classic. Every conversation we had whilst in production was that someone, <laughs> someone new had a sighting. Like everyone, we just kept yeah. popping up and people had sightings all the time. You got a dad, right? Yeah, I know. He's in the dock. I was like, I don't know that yeah. guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. My uh, my dad had a sighting in the dock, which is uh, really interesting. But um, I went into production. Uh, I think both me and Stu, Stu's the uh, director and cinematographer of the hunt, and we both went in with a pretty on the fence position. Mm-hmm. We didn't want to get too attached to the reality that they're one hundred percent here, or the reality that there's no way they're here Mm -hmm. um and i think as a documentary filmmaker you have to have a stance like that and i think yeah i look at i look at your louis thoreau's um of the documentary world and i'm constantly amazed at their ability to stay objective through all of it and not draw too much uh emotion or chase you know every single lead and end up empty-handed so uh for my personal position on the the reality of a big cat being in Australia, I can't say a whole lot because the <laughs> doco does, you know, lead to some interesting conclusions at the end. Um, but I have I have no doubt they were here. I totally believe that from the stories we've uncovered and the people we've spoken to. It's just, um, yeah, whether they're still here, I don't know. <laughs> it's... Uh, we've, we, we, yeah, we came across a lot of really interesting information and... Yeah. We talk to some really credible sources, and that's it's it's a tough one. Like it, it is, it seems that everyone has an opinion, and I still remain, you know, to the fact that I don't deny or totally um, get behind the idea that they're here. I just have to stay objectively on the fence, or else I'd get way mm. too excited about <laughs> running out the camera again and trying to get some footage. <laughs> yes, that's very diplomatic. That's probably the wise answer i mean not to get into like a debate or discussion on it but i think like for me one of the hardest things to get over is why haven't we found any like remains or like fossils or not fossils but just like skeletons of these things exactly if if they're they've been spotted from new south wales right across to wa that's not just like a couple like legendary cats it's 
a whole bunch of these things that have been breeding for 60 years. Like the first sighting yeah. that you mentioned in the dock, I think was like in the 60s. So yeah, quite early. Yeah. I don't know how long these things live, but hey, if they're out there, <laughs> we'll <laughs> yeah, find out one it. day. <laughs> that's it. One day. One We've got day. more cameras in the world than we've ever had before. So yeah. exactly. Everyone's got a uh, camera in their pocket. That's it. So we might tell the story of Jake Plumridge now. So what was your, I guess, origin story of getting into this? I know that you've always been interested in media. Um, how much did, I guess, your teenage years influence what's got you through to this point? Yeah. Um, so I was always interested in, you know, probably from a very young kid, like we're talking five, six my dad had a had a giant like home video camera that kind of made it out to every family function or you know every big occasion like Christmas Day and I was always hassling him, Dad, can I have a look through the camera? I just have to have a look at the camera. And he, you know, I wouldn't shut up. And from that was from a young kid. <laughs> I was just like absolutely amazed by these things called cameras. And um, yeah, pretty much continued my interest throughout sort of schooling years I loved visual arts I loved music I loved pretty much anything got me out of doing maths or anything (laughs) uh intellectual um I was yeah often found locked away in the art room you know designing something or you know creating a film or and I was really lucky to have some great uh older mates and even my brothers are very creative as well but I had some um you know, just really supportive guys around me that were filmmakers and photographers and designers and they spurred me on and sort of put up with my never-ending questions on how do I do this in Photoshop and how do you edit this and just that nagging teenager. Mm. But I think I always knew I wanted to be in an aspect of film photography. It's just always been the thing I've wanted to do and it's the thing that I'm lucky enough to do for work and it's also the thing I do as my hobby so uh, it's kind of the perfect pairing like that so yeah I essentially just kept chipping away at working on projects and got out of school and went I don't want to go to university I'd had enough of sitting in a classroom and kind of took a bit of a gap year and headed over to uh, Uganda and did some work with an aid organization over there, just like uh, photography and film work and came back and went, yeah, I've definitely got to do this as my job. So I started working, I would have been, how old? Maybe 1920, I started working for a company in Geelong called Robot Army. So I worked for Stu Ross and Ryan Chamley, the directors there and they, uh, yeah, they're they're some of my best mates and I... um, I've gone through freelancing, I've worked for other companies, but I've come back to Robot Army again and they have been, yeah, super instrumental in just trusting me and, you know, training me on the job. Mm. And um, I was so glad I didn't go to uni. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't stand <laughs> doing another minute in a classroom. I just had to have my hands on um, a camera. So those guys kind of took me in and um, they'll always brag and tell me that they taught me everything I know but um they're just the the funniest guys and yeah it's so much fun working with them but 
they really were um, the catalyst for expanding into a heap of different other forms as well. I love animation, love love music, love scoring, photography, film. Like, I kind of like yeah, to do right. a bit of everything. So, um, I don't think I'll ever master anything because I'm too busy just sort of <laughs> playing around with a new hobby or different uh, skill set in the film industry. But yeah, yeah right. it's been it's been fun, man. Been real fun. It's cool. And like, what was Robot Army when you joined it? Because I know like that they've obviously gone on to probably most famously do Rostered on, um, which is on Netflix now. And well, is it on Netflix now? I think it's on Netflix now. Yes, yes. So Rostered on is. Uh, Shoot, to be honest, it's bounced between Netflix and Channel 7 and I don't, I believe it's on Netflix. I don't know. But yes, yeah, Rossadon was our, probably our most successful yeah. project. Yeah. And so Ryan was the writer behind that. He was on this podcast a couple of years ago, actually. Yeah. So what was Robot Army when you first joined them since it was so long ago? Yeah, it was very, uh, it's very humble beginnings. I think the first, <laughs> the first day my project was to set up a chair because we didn't have a chair for me in the office. And it was, <laughs> we kind of look back on it and laugh because it was, um, yeah, we didn't, I don't think we really knew what we were doing. We were kind of uh, fumbling our way through and the boys were crazy enough to take on a young kid who was also fumbling his way through things. And uh, we were shacked up in this tiny, tiny, you know, little office um sharing it with one of our good friends an illustrator jack and she was bundled in with us and we uh yeah we started there in this tiny little office you know in the on Morable street in geelong out the back of a printer place and it was um yeah look it was it was pretty humble beginnings (laughs) but we uh that's where we kind of started and we slowly just kept chipping away and we cut our teeth on sort of doing corporate jobs early and then um we sort of just started building up a client um base and you know the boys have been obviously instrumental in spearheading the direction of the company towards where they wanted it and that's been great into like a commercial sense and also Hmm. uh, into a scripted uh like tv and short film and um yeah it's been really rewarding seeing the business grow and just seeing the absolute, uh, you know, courage that both Ryan and Stu have had over the years on taking on challenges and um, just believing in themselves and believing that, you know, someone's got to make a short film. We might as well be the one to do it. Someone's got to do a TV series. We've got an idea. Let's do it. Like, mm. they just had a crazy idea and they roll with it. And uh, I, yeah, massively applaud them for doing that. So, yeah, sure. it's been cool sort of seeing the uh, the growth. That's awesome. I think you being involved with it pretty much that whole time, what would you say is the way they've been able to go from A to to Z where they are now? Is it just simply using the folio that they have as evidence of what they're capable of and just incrementally stepping that up over time? Yeah, definitely. I think it's a mixture of, it's not like, it's not glorified, but everyone needs sort of corporate and commercial work to get Mm -hmm. you through. So it's like having a base of, just uh money that pays the bills and then the boys have always just backed themselves on projects and it's often been like like rostered on season one like and especially the pilot like we shot the pilot at better electrical at uh, sort of a pc and electrical store in uh town and we shot that in like a day 
and we essentially pulled a pilot episode from that and that was fully self-funded the boys just backed themselves and they yeah just really believed in this idea and that's that's ryan's uh it's been ryan's baby that he's really developed and he just said stuff it i'm gonna shoot a pilot and we're gonna pitch it and they did and that worked for him and that's led to two seasons of Rostodon. Um, and the last season we had with Channel 7, so that went around Australia and um, internationally. And then, yeah, ever since then, they've kind of just backed themselves. If they felt it was a good idea, hmm. see if they can get, you know, pitch for it, get funding or, um, you know, I think to a degree you have to, you have to really go for your passion projects as a business if you want to do cooler and more exciting things you know you just doing corporate work all the time isn't really ever going to elevate you to that spot gonna have to be like all right i've got to jump out of the boat it's going to cost a bit you know to make it happen but Mm. we've got to just give it a crack and by continuously just having goes at um cool exciting projects they've managed to land themselves in you know frequent work of people that are you know then pitching us ideas for short films and want us to be the production company and yeah they're in a really good spot ryan's just finished another script um that i had read had a read through the other night it's absolutely hilarious and uh yeah it's exciting it's just been a one after the other of just believing in themselves and really wanting to um make these script ideas come to life that's unreal i, I love the story of rostered on because as you said it was a passion project to the point where like he even just threw it up on youtube like the whole season was there for yeah. the longest time and that's where it kind of exploded and so that means for a long time there wasn't any payoff there wasn't like a great deal of revenue that comes back from that and it was only by its popularity and i guess the quality of the of the writing and like you know the performances and just everything coming together like it took off and went viral basically to the point that it was going to get picked up by Netflix and you're going to get the second season and Channel 7 is going to pay attention. Yeah. And that's awesome. So so what was it like for you to see that explode to not only the point of it going viral, but for it to actually get legitimized by the Australian TV network picking it up officially as well? Yeah, it was it was really cool, man. I think Rossadon's been a project that I think everyone can relate to. Everyone at some stage has worked in a retail job or a similar job that you know you deal with nightmare clients and you, just the ups and downs of, you know, retail life. So we, we, like Ryan knew that it was just, it was too applicable to everyone's lives for it not to be successful. Like everyone has, has had that struggle um, and relates to it. So seeing it like blow up and seeing people be like, oh, I've been in this situation or oh, that takes me back to that time or I'm currently in this situation. Like we just found so many people were there and living rostered on in real life. And um, the views just on the little trailers and little snippets we put out just started amassing millions and millions and millions of views. Like it was phenomenal like uh, i don't remember the final numbers but certain views certain videos were getting you know upwards of plus 10 million views and it was just people were were loving it and it was really cool and um that's a credit to ryan again in that he just saw it and that's his story as well he he uh was working at jb back in the day and it did his head in and (laughs) thought like what a great like way to draw from a past experience and 
make a TV series. So it was great even hearing from some of my friends that were like, yeah, that's, I totally get it. And that's the, the life I'm living at the moment. And I think Rostodon did a really good job as well of it put a few twists and turns in and actually challenged people to, you know, see where they're at and is it time to move on or, um, you know, put, it was, it was a hilarious show. Like I loved it, but it was also really challenging and I felt it was just the perfect combo. Hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. Definitely recommend people check that out if they haven't yet. We should probably circle back to the whole Animal Planet thing. So did you say that was prior to working with, with Robot Army? Yeah, it was. So I worked for Robot Army initially probably three or four years and then uh, freelanced and then worked for a company up in Sydney, um, Untitled, who are an amazing um, uh, documentary company up there under um, Abraham Joff, the director up there. And yeah, they essentially did a series uh, called, I think it was Big Cat Tales in the end, they landed with. Um, and yeah, so we were over there for months at a time filming with, um, yeah, lions, hyenas, cheetahs, leopards. We kind of followed the story of a few key um, animals in the area and it was, it was an amazing opportunity, like a really cool experience. Uh, I don't think... Yeah, I don't think I'll ever get that close to animals again. It was just phenomenal to see, just observing these beautiful lions and lionesses and we got to tell their stories and it was it was awesome. So it was a great sort of precursor in that I'd worked in a real run and gun documentary environment. Like it was, um, yeah, it was pretty, you know, you get the call up to chase um, a pack of lions and it's on, like you just, you're out there and, it's very challenging documentary filmmaking because nothing scripted. You kind of had to work big days, long hours, early starts and work in hot heat. Like you, you work pretty hard, but it's very rewarding to see the final shots at the end of the day and to capture the stories. And um, so I loved that process over there. That was really good and a great learning curve for me and just sort of sharpening and tuning up my documentary filmmaking and um yeah so that was like a great a great precursor to working on the hunt and sort of carrying over those uh skill sets into a new production yeah right i was gonna say like it must be like a really full-on way to kind of dip your toe like it's not just dipping your toe you're jumping right into the documentary filmmaking when you find yourself in a a foreign country doing that kind of thing right yeah yeah it's a um it's a head spin in that you're you kind of you're traveling over there with probably 10, 15 crew member and you're, um, yeah, you set this challenge of telling the stories of particular animals and following them for days on end and, um, working with some amazing hosts over there as well. Um, and it was, yeah, a surreal experience. Africa is just amazing. I love Africa for so many different reasons. I, I, I'm always, always wanted to get back i was actually going to be flying out to africa early this week but uh due to restrictions i haven't been able to get over there so um it's uh, i love the place so any excuse to get over there i'm i'm right there but yeah it really was um a rewarding experience in being tasked to um pull together this documentary and i got to work with some just really great guys and some really talented 
cameraman and that was a great great networking a great um learning time for me as well being able to sort of see these great guys do the thing in action and mm. me teach them they teach me it was a really great experience all around sure so jumping forward to like 2018 you start working on the hunt is this different from other projects in ways where like you mentioned before we started recording you had quite a bit to do in terms of like you were filming you're operating like obviously operating the camera but doing sound you did motion graphics in post uh you're doing like the the like working some of the drone shots do you usually have that much to do or is it um a bit more when you're doing something on the scale of a a, a feature like this yeah so um there is a massive element of you do play a one-man band when you do documentary filmmaking it's because of the unexpectedness of events and uh, we were running on a smaller crew for the hunt, um, we kind of did play a few different hats and I absolutely love that process. I think as a creative, I really uh, thrive off doing a bit of everything. I think if I got stuck doing just editing or just camera work or just motion graphics, I'd, it'd get mm. stale pretty quick. So I was the first to sort of put my hand up and work on multiple facets of the production but um yeah I do, i've got a few different credit listings i've listed for sound and you know camera and motion graphics so um yeah we do get pretty good at um being able to shoot on the fly and um a production like this requires it you can't you don't have a lot of time to set up you know if, if it's a if it's been a fresh sighting or uh you know it's interview you kind of you you work pretty hard to get to get the results and Mm. um a lot of it was we try and shoot for the best possible edit uh at the end of the day and that requires shooting you know probably you know 80 percent of shots won't make it into the final 85 percent of shots won't make it into the final cut and that's that's the reality of uh documentary filmmaking we um kind of shoot an abundance to allow us to get down to a really good edit at the end of the day and and then yeah so we we kind of work on the the full scale production and then it obviously um involved us traveling all over australia and chasing a heap of different uh stories up and uh we worked with Vaughn king our host of the show and uh two other guys simon and john who were, um have been big cat researchers for years and years and um they were fascinating to work with and we um yeah worked with them for you know we a a lot of a lot of the project involved research so uh filming sort of took place uh a year ago and we prior to that had to really get our heads around right what's the plausibility of this story what's what's the reality of big cats being in australia and that's uh that was a challenge because being a taboo topic and some people tell you you're dreaming or some people tell you, no, they're, they're absolutely here. We had to sort of scope, uh, have a, have a quite a large scope when researching because we had to dig up anything and everything we could on the topic. And a lot of that was in person chatting to people that had been, uh, have had long sightings with hunters or, um, uh, people that Bushmen that just knew their stuff and they were amazing to chat to. And, um and then it was you know looking through old articles we scoured for months looking through articles and looking for uh any details we could dig up on it looked at we studied animal behavior of um 
Panthers overseas and Big Cats overseas and try to get a feel for what that looks like over here. What are we looking for? And a lot of that comes down to, for us, for the documentary, we set a lot of camera traps and a lot of... uh, So camera trap, for those that don't know, is a night vision camera, like an infrared camera, and that uh, is triggered by motion. So they sit on trees in areas we believe there could be a big cat or a lot of animal activity and we would have rolled on thousands of hours of these camera traps um, and that played a big part in the film, in our research and also uh, in footage in the film, but that gave us an idea of, you know, animal activity, what are we expecting? Because um, that's one of the best ways to, if you know, if we are to find a big cat in Australia, that if we can set traps and then leave our human presence behind and sort of remove the humanness of it and let the animals do their thing, we, we got some pretty great footage a lot of it, you know, due to time constraints uh, of the documentary, we weren't able to get it in, but there was some amazing footage we captured. And mm. um, again, that ties back into that whole research. We've got to understand where are these cats? Where do they like to go? And um, so, yeah, the, fi- the actual filming aspect is just a small part of it. Um, it's the, the pre-production and the preparation that is so important in pulling off a documentary like this. I'm always curious with a documentary like this, there's um, this goal that you'll actually capture footage of the thing that you're filming, whether it's a cat or whatever. But then also you want there's these amazing shots that you've set up for like artistic reasons. And then you kind of probably have to think sometimes you obviously want the best shot possible but you also have to at times probably think that's good enough so how do you as a probably a perfectionist in filming certain things also compromise when you're filming a documentary and sometimes close enough is good enough yeah absolutely i wish i kind of wish you was here to answer that because we are it kills (laughs) us when a shot isn't perfect (laughs) we are we love the um we love the the art of the shot and getting the best result possible um but at times we have to say that'll do because that's what we need for the documentary and that's hard because you can sometimes rig up you know we had some crazy camera rigs with using gimbal technology and we shot a lot of it on high-end um 8k cinema cameras and sometimes you just have to have the attitude that we got to get in there if if we get the shot we get the shot like and I found that working in over in Africa as well. It's the exact same experience. You can, to a degree, a shot has no purpose if it can't tell the story. So it's great to have mm. a pretty shot, but if it can't be a vessel for a um, you know a storyline, it, it has no purpose in the edit. So you have to be okay with some shots aren't going to look good. Some shots are going to be out of focus, and that's totally okay because if it's conveying story, then you've won but it doesn't make it any easier (laughs) (laughs) have you ever just like had something you couldn't use because it was just like unusable and like (laughs) yeah oh yeah and you (laughs) just really deliberated like it's a perfect shot except that it's terrible shot (laughs) yeah definitely it's a constant constant battle in the cutting room of uh should it go in should it stay out does it work does it not work we you know, we're our own worst enemies when it comes to the edit because when you become so attached to a project, 
you feel like it's your baby. And I think yeah. Stu being the front runner and creator of the show is uh, probably the most precious in the sense that he has an idea of what it looks like and we're out there to convey it. And when it comes to the edit, like, of course, he's going to be picky because it's his, you know, it's his documentary. Like, we've we've got to nail it. And, um, yeah, that has meant many hours of fussing over, should we cut a second here? Should we cut a second there? Tiny little details that do end up making a great result for the film, but um, that's the documentary process. And sometimes you have to be okay that you have to let things go. Do you have a cheat with like digital editing with that kind of stuff? No, we stay pretty <laughs> uh, we stay pretty truthful. I mean, if it's to stabilize, we have great software that allows us to stabilize footage. Or so some of yeah. the Panther footage we did have that people sent in is shot on an iPhone from say four hundred meters away. That's mm. obviously the more you uh, magnify, the the larger the shakes become. So we use special software to stabilize all that and sure uh, i think if you didn't have that software you'd be pretty nauseous by the end of the documentary so <laughs> uh any i suppose any trick that we can employ that makes a doco allow again allows us to push the story better is a win for us cool all right so what would you say has been the hardest part of getting to where you're at i guess you know you've been with this studio for a while you've able to confidently go into probably any project they're doing now so what, what's been the, the challenge to overcome to get here yeah definitely i think i think i see it as i still haven't sort of i will never make it as they put it i think it's an ongoing process of refining your craft and learning the do's and don'ts but i think um to be honest if, if it's like a as a creative community i know um there's a lot of it can be really hard sometimes with producing films and producing work sort of day after day. And there is a mental battle with that. And I think I'm pretty, um, pretty out there to chat about mental health and that, um, sometimes that can be a limiting factor. And it's definitely something that I've struggled through is that it's, uh, sometimes you can, you know, your skills are all there. It's just your ability to back yourself and can be really hard to keep producing day after day. And technically as well, I think, I've uh, got thrown in the deep end on, yeah, it's funny. I feel like m- most of the main projects I've worked on, I had to learn a new skill or sort of skill up in an area quite quickly to produce a result. And say for Rostodon, I was, I really lent myself to working with gimbal technology and became a gimbal tech and operator on that. And that carried a lot of, you know, challenges with that. And you, you're lugging around big cinema cameras on this expensive motorized system and I really love that challenge as well so I went really deep on researching and now I'm quite across working with a multitude of stabilization systems and yeah I suppose the biggest challenges are also the greatest rewards in that they often the challenges produce a great result on the other side that you do skill up in an area or uh, you have to work through stuff, whether that is a mental health battle or whether that is a technical, creative execution thing. It it really does vary. Yeah, awesome. So I want to know what would be your advice to people. I, I know quite a lot of people who either want to work in video, in filming or in documentary specifically. So what's your advice to people? I think um, 
I think the most important thing, if you're looking to enter the space of production or should there be any industry, if that's, you know, if that's music production, if that's game design, if it's uh, whatever, whatever um, is your interest, I think there's a real um, truth that to sort of um, further your career, it's great to be surrounded by people that know what they're doing and have been there. And I think a part of that is getting in the same room with them and working under them. And I've been really, uh, really thankful to be, have been taught by some really talented people. And I look back at sort of those key people in my lives that took an interest in, um, but a lot of that was me initiating, hey, can I, can I hold, a, you know, a couple of cables on set or can I hold, you know, can I just jump on set and get some experience? Can I, you know, carry bags on a documentary? Can I, you know, help out designing something? Like, I think a lot of it, you have to be okay that it's, it's very much a journey and that it takes time to build a folio and, and that's okay. Like that's where you learn. So yeah, I think really seeking out real relationships with industry professionals and creatives is so vital because a folio will do so much for you. It's a great initial interest that people can see. But I think so much, especially in the film industry, is your your likability and your ability to work with others and to, um, you know, work with client demands and complete um, productions on time. And just things like that is speaks volumes um, outside of just having a good folio. So I think it's a matter of being sort of an all-rounder and that you're happy to do the the coffee runs or whatever if that means that you know in a year's time that you can be holding you can be a camera operator on a tv show or it's so worth it it's just worth getting in front of people that's really good and i think that as much as it's awesome to have the best gear and everything i'm guessing you'd agree like learning the do's and don'ts at the start is probably even more important than that absolutely i look i see a lot of a lot of footage that's been shot on amazing cameras and I just kind of walk away and go, oh, that was good. It just didn't really go anywhere. Or uh, The idea can sometimes be the more important part over the execution. I think sometimes you have to set yourself up with a an idea of what you want to go out and create. And, um, you know, in time, the better gear and the, the more expensive gear will come. But um, sometimes that means you got to shoot it on an iPhone. Go for it. I know there's a lot of directors that have opted to shoot on some pretty basic equipment and produce some amazing films on it so yeah nice cameras are great but you know i think it's that the idea and uh your ability to actually make it that is what will make you stand out for sure yeah cool all right well that is the podcast the last question for you jake if you could do anything and know you wouldn't fail what would you do oh man what would i do i'd do anything i wouldn't fail any like dream projects yeah there's there's a few projects i reckon i'd love to work on um i mean i'm i'm just a sucker for documentaries as a whole so there's there's definitely been a lot of um a lot of crazy stories i've read about that i'm really interested i've always got this weird obsession with chernobyl or really just just out there events that have happened that I still think have been covered well, but there's definitely room to tell cooler stories. And I don't know, man, that's a hard one. There's there's so many ideas that, you know, float around. But, um, I mean, a, a big thing is I'd love to interview key people throughout history. I'd love to one day, you know, 
uh, it'd be amazing to interview Barack Obama's of the world or I don't know I think I, I really enjoy learning from people like that that have excelled at what they've done and you know whether it's a film series I don't know but we aim high hey we aim high yeah, for sure that's the thing you gotta you gotta have something to work towards <laughs> absolutely cool well thanks for coming on the show thanks for sharing uh, about the hunt people can check it out on Foxtel now apparently there's a 10 day trial if you uh, haven't haven't got it at the moment so there's no excuse to get into the discovery channel but yeah thanks jake it's been really cool bro an absolute pleasure thanks for having me on thank you for listening and thanks to audio technica you can keep up with jake over at jakeplumridge.com and also with robot army and all their projects at robotarmyproductions.com.au if you'd like to support this podcast you can do so by leaving a five-star rating in apple podcasts or podchaser wherever you listen to your podcast and to go one step further you can support the 8-bit patreon at patreon.com slash we are 8-bit to help this podcast along with the other fine productions from the 8-bit collective you can keep up with me on socials at Jono himself and until next episode keep putting in work